Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fourth chapter of Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Today's going to be about the second part of Iron from Stone. Chuck is going to talk to us a lot about place and people and story. And that's very important because it gives you a sense of the people that are affected by what happens. Uh, so without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. So in the 19th century, here in Ramapo, hunting and foraging had long been a subsistence activity for the community of iron workers, but it was also something that the gentlemen sportsmen were interested in. Mind you, they're the folks who fund and invest and own the ironworks. In 1820, Jeremiah Pearson, along with Rockland County residents Isaac Sloat and Stephen Sloat, as well as Orange County resident Jonas Seeley, they formed the Deer Hunting Party for the purpose of keeping boats on the lake, for example, at Tuxedo Pond, because in those days people actually shot a deer from a boat. By mid-century, the ever-expanding resource extraction of the works, the wood chopping, the charcoal burning, the mining, and the like, had disrupted the complex ecosystems with the forage and the timber, as well as the hillside erosion and the sedimentation of fishing ponds. These things were having, they're having their toll upon the Ramapo area. First, the large animals, the deer, the bear, and the cougar thinned out. And then the smaller fur bearers, like the bobcat, the fox, the mink, and the beaver, they diminished. By 1848, the last bear recorded in the region was killed by a man named John Storms. It would be more than another century before a bear would return. Deer herds were back by the turn of the century and proliferated because their natural enemies were still gone. It is in this time frame that Ernst Heffelstein, envisioned his romantic tale of loss at the Augusta Furnace, that is, the Ramapo Salamander. The Augusta had been officially shut down after its founder, Solomon Townsend, passed away in 1811. And two decades later, Frank Forrester, a noted writer and sportsman, came upon the Augusta and described the setting as millweeds cumbering the stream with masses of decaying timber and the whole presenting a most desolate and mournful aspect. While the Ramapo works five miles south along the river was still bustling and productive, the resources needed to sustain this output was getting exhausted. With wood-fired charcoal thinning out, anthracite coal was required to be shipped in by canal or rail from Pennsylvania. During the cost of production was just going up all the time. Heffelstein walked through the Ramapo Pass, taking in the persona of the works the darkening of the sky from charcoal burning, the barren and eroded landscape. And he married these images to his spirited Rosicrucian metaphysics. The frontispiece of Elizabeth Oakes Smith's book, The Salamander, written after Heffelstein, illustrates the remnants of the archway of the Augusta Forge along the Ramapo River. Heffelstein, in his wanderings through the iron community of the past, had picked up the vernacular of the workers, the salamander, he learned, was a reference to the fused and partly reduced iron ore in the furnace. Standing among the ruins of the Augusta furnace, Heffelstein, and sometimes later Smith, clearly saw the imprint of an unworldly manifestation, and mixing the archaic Christian imagery with the local lore, they envisioned a morality tale that spoke of the risk when man draws too much from the stone. In 1963, my dad, Walt, applied for a pistol permit. 
when he was appointed the water commissioner for the village of Hilburn. One of his commissioning duties entailed checking on the reservoir pump house up past 6th Street, which was a known rattlesnake country. This little reservoir was a remnant of the planned village that William Waite Snow had so carefully laid out as a part of his leg of the ironworks back in the mid-19th century. Now, Snow's estate was long gone. It was taken up by the New York State Thruway in the early 1950s. The wheel foundry buildings by then in East Hilburn were warehouse space for Avon Cosmetics. And the ice house pond that had been in the middle of the village, well, it had lost its feed. It no longer had the water it needed to sustain. But by 6th Street, up there, past the village dump, the reservoir remained in its final years, a service to the community. Now, Walt never really shot any rattlesnakes. He kind of liked them. He just fired over them to scare them with the sound. I heard by this time a, a book called Cole's History of Rockland County. My brother-in-law, Tony, got it for me, and I'd been reading through it. And another book, Penfold's Romantic Suffering, offered me yet another sketch of the early village life. So I was, I was having this curiosity about Walt's boyhood in the village. But my father was only rarely talkative, and often he limited his information to single statements, as when we were walking through the brush at the reservoir, and he pointed up a slope and said something about an Indian camp up that way. Well, I waited, but he said nothing more, and I debated about pressing the issue. When he mentioned that William Snow's daughter, Nora Snow, had established a school for the hill people, these folks being the same folks he referred to as the Indians, he recollected about an artist by the name of Francis Wheaton, who also offered the Indian children painting and drawing classes. Wheaton lived up on Grant Road, along the state line in the mountains. But there was a, a sad, stubborn resolution in Walt, and like that of his colleagues, he resented the progress of the thruway and its impact on village life. Sometimes, as he waxed nostalgic, he would fall silent, and it would be days, maybe weeks, before I could get another story out of him. Another of his commissioner duties was flushing the fire hydrants. We did this in the summer, and kids gathered around to play in the full force of the water pressure. Walt explained to me the intelligence of the system's gravity feed from the upslope reservoir. As we walked through the village with his big hydrant wrench over his shoulder, he pointed out how the houses were arranged, where the outhouses were planned for to be a safe distance from the street-side water pumps. The segregated schools, he pointed them out, and the churches, too, separate as they were, as well as the floodplain that accommodated the trash burning and the disposal in earlier times. He was clearly proud of the village, of its plan, of how it was laid out, impressed by Snow's vision, and yet he was sad. As he told his stories, he relived them with great pleasure, like the time the workhorse engaged to drag the ice cutters for block sections of ice off of the pond. Well, the horse fell in. Men were brought down to pull the nag out. It had broken through the ice, and it was freezing. So Nora Snow, that was William Waite Snow's daughter, she sent down a bottle of brandy, a real fine brandy, to calm the horse's nerves. And she discovered it was more than the animal's nerves that were soothed by the liquor when the drunken party staggered up with an empty bottle. His stories also spoke of the sense of inevitable change, even in his youth, that hung over the village like a shadow of things to come. At the ironworks, he and his brothers got jobs painting switch stands and the like. His brother Dutch was notably the fastest at painting the switch stands. 
In the late 1920s, the workshop was visited by a representative of a spray painting company. It was proposed that spray guns would increase production and improve costs. My Uncle Dutchie was called forth to participate in a painting contest with the representative of the spray paint company. Ten switch stands were set up, and the work staff and administrators were invited to watch Dutch and the spray men mix their paint and ready themselves. It was R.J. Davidson's son who held the stopwatch and called for the contest to begin. According to Walt, his brother completed one stand and was starting the second one when the spray man finally got his air pump to engage, but the hose blew a gasket, giving the entire office staff a fine lead finish. This, of course, was a great day for man against the machine, but clearly, once the bugs were worked out, hand painting would soon be a lost skill at the shops. When Davidson offered my injured grandfather a post at a pumping station in the late 1920s, that too indicated a change in the world, as truck delivery and car transport was very much on the rise. The ironworks that brought in the railroad was making its final transition to yet another delivery system one that had been vigorously promoted by Henry Ford. Thanks to Fordism, the wonders of the assembly line promised an increased standard of living, better wages, and cheap automobile travel, along with decreased skill sets and lowered standards of innovation. Through the Great Depression of the 1930s, the Ramapo region held out for an industrial answer to their economic woes. Theirs had been one of the pioneer seats of industry, and despite the works closing, there was still the belief that industry would one day return to the valley. In the meantime, the secondary forest growth had rerouted the hillsides. The deer population was thriving, partridge and pheasant had returned, and by the early 1950s, much of the fur game was back. But the sadness that I detected as a boy, the sense of loss that seemed to be a part of the land, was still very strong and filtered through in many of their local stories. For a brief spell, cougars had returned to the valley in the second decade of the 20th century. They were hunted with dogs until the last one was tracked down by a Hilburn resident by the name of Onderdunk. His killing of this wild cat cost him two of his hounds. My dad and his brother Dutchy remembered the day he returned with the surviving hound, his gun, and the cougar. He met the boys down along the Ramapo River, he was tired and worn out from his hunt. He sold his gun to Walt, who was at the time 10 years of age. Then he went over to Davidson's house and he sold the cat hide to R.J. for $20. The old hunter was then reported to have gone into the Eureka Hotel in Suffern, where he drank all of his earnings. This story was told many times over, many times, and it always offered up a sad lament to the passing of the last cougar the passing of something wild and untamed, something innocent and gone. Another story with the Hamlet community at the Ironworks is that of Lavender, the spirit who hitches a ride with a couple of boys to attend a school dance at the Tuxedo High School. They met her at the Black Iron Bridge of the Ironworks Hamlet, where she introduced herself as Lavender. She was wearing an old-fashioned evening dress of that color. She dances with one of the boys until close to midnight, and then... She is returned to the very site where they picked her up. She insists on being dropped off right there. She had been chilled, so the boy she had danced with wrapped his jacket around her shoulders. Therefore, he returns to retrieve the jacket the next day. After being turned away by most of the inhabitants of the hamlet, an ancient woman tells the boys Lavender was her daughter and that she was killed by a hauling truck with failed brakes at the works. 
She tells them that Lavender regularly hitches with one boy or another, as she had her heart so set on a night of dancing. The elder directs them to the Ramapo Presbyterian graveyard so they can see her stone marker, and when they get there, they find the boy's jacket on her stone. This story is strongly believed by the Hamlet community at the old ironworks, as well as the inhabitants of the village of Hilburn. Here, too, we find variation on the theme of lost innocence, of a bygone time, and death being caused by a symbol of industrial progress. Back up on Cranberry Lake, sitting out on a very still water in the early evening of an August night, I looked at the Pearson house. The light had just gone on in Henry Pearson's study. I could see the walls lined in books and the figure of an old man sitting in his easy chair. Here was the last reigning member of an industrial era, the patriarch of a land company with holdings that went back to the 1790s. Walt was smoking. I didn't expect him to talk much, but he noticed that I was watching the house. He checked his bass line, and then he said to me, You know that lavender story your Uncle Mal told you? Well, Pearson there, he holds a lot of stock in that, seeing as how it has to do with the ironworks and the hamlet and all that. I looked again at the silhouette of the old man, in the window, quietly reading, and I wondered how an intelligent man could believe in such things. But I was so young then, and only, only then was I learning about salamanders and ironworks and hitchhikers and industry. That's where that story came from. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. That was the... Uh, Spooky. That was the one that I think, yeah, y- you created uh, and produced that for um, for cable, for the History Channel, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yep, and Aunt yeah. Peg. I remember... Your yeah. mom played... I have a copy of that. Played Lavender's mom. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. I remember it well. I think I have a copy of that somewhere, but DVD, I... DVD, yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's still available on any kind of, uh, on YouTube or something like that somewhere or whatever. Somebody told me they saw it just recently. Yeah. So they found it somewhere, yeah. like on YouTube or something. Very cool. Somebody shared it, probably. You know, these stories, though, are, are wonderful. I, I always wondered, though, about your dad. When you said a few weeks ago when we started this series that he said, you know, well, you have to take bad with the good. I think that was pretty much the attitude back then that this wasn't so serious. It wouldn't have a profound effect. It was a great big world and a great big earth. And you could do these things without there really being any harm. It's only in in the more recent decade that we really come to understand, or or decade or two, that we really come to understand that that these things that, that happened had a profound effect. But I was wondering what your dad thought of... I mean, he was... A fireman. He was the water commissioner. He, more than most, would have a sense of the cause and effect. When did it dawn upon him that there was really a, a danger here? I, I think it was a evolving thing. He he subscribed. His favorite magazine was the New York State Conservationist, and it was a good magazine. It wasn't really a radical magazine, but it was a good magazine for people interested in conservation. And there were editorials about these concerns. It illustrated why he felt differently about Rachel Carson than Mal did. Mal saw Rachel Carson as a sensationalist troublemaker, even called her a communist at one point, because of her 
position on uh, pesticides, but Walt had been reading The Conservationist, and there was a lot of concern around DDT, and especially once Carson produced her her book, uh, Silent Spring. And so I think he was getting it over a period of time, but it was slow, slow in coming. But I think he was getting it, and I also think he was extremely tolerant of those who didn't get it, which, you know, Mal was his best friend, you could say. Sure. And Mal, from the same family, Walt's older brother, very different perspective. That always kind of struck me. Walt, I think, was, as you say, very accepting of both sides, which in a way puts him in a position that's able to actually maybe negotiate and find that place in the middle where the truth lives. Also to progress, which is what it takes an open mind to progress and to think rather than just say, this is the way it is today. You don't need fact anymore. People are proud of being ignorant. It's it's (laughs) really, it's true. It's almost a badge of honor that you don't have a degree. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, I don't need that. They literally let, Oh, you went to college and they look at that. Yeah. They call you elitist. Yeah. 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 So like somehow that's something to be ashamed of or, or that it's not a good thing, you know. It's a crazy time. Well, it's, it's a, the death <laughs> yeah. of expertise. We, yeah. We've gone through a period of time where we've, it's been coming on for decades, where we've demonized expertise because expertise established a lot of the significant environmental regulations, many of which were signed by Richard Nixon. Right. A lot of those really significant yeah. pieces of legislation. And, and just, like, just like the way they've been chipping away at uh, Social Security and Medicare, they're chipping away at the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. They're chipping away at all of that stuff, too. And we should honor the expertise. You know, it doesn't mean you can't question it. You should demand it be explained to you in a way that you can understand. Get the academic off their podium. You know, get them sure. off their high horse if they're condescending. But the work is still there. The science is still real. Just because right. you don't like the attitude of some academic who may very well be a condescending snob. But that doesn't mean the work isn't real. And accessing that work so you can establish policy that can actually achieve something. That's sure. so terribly important. Yeah, I mean, how can you really criticize that work if you're not even, if you don't understand it? Yeah. If you want to criticize it, then understand it. Yeah. That did come from Nixon. Yeah. That was, these are Republican accomplishments at a time when the Republican Party was both conservative and concerned. And they used to be conservatives were the original conservationists. Yeah. You go all the way back to yeah. Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, why wouldn't they be, right? I mean, never mind that they These were arrogant and park. white misogynists and all that other stuff. I mean, I mean, don't never mind it, but along with that, they were also <laughs> conservationists. That was part of conserving. Right, right. Which is also, we've lost that too. Yeah. To a large degree. I mean, they even started to eat into the national parks a little or tried to. Anyway. Oh, yeah. This is all very recent. You know, you said they were chipping away. I think they took some chunks out of it in the last four to six years. Real chunks out of the epa and they're they're they've taken its power away from right that. the epa is toothless i know they're the literally part. taking right. it really is yeah i call it I, I call them monetarians that's my own term <laughs> monetarians uh, yeah they they've they've left their roots in conservatism and everything is about money now everything and and and, power and power sure the power so that you can get to the money and and the the lawyers you know they come from yale and harvard these are these are highly trained experts really really good at what they do unfortunately 
they've become so good at it that they've used their knowledge and their abilities to really carve out its winner-take-all, carve out winning positions. Profitability? Yeah, profitability <laughs> and, and the ability to get, you know, I got mine mm-hmm. and to hell with you. And that's what really worries me is that we've gotten really good at screwing each other. Well, I've got to tell you, uh, there was, I can't say his name because he's still with the EPA and I don't want to risk his lot in life, the poor bugger. But he said something really interesting to me when we were achieving what we achieved in the Torn Valley. He said, you know, if you were just starting this project out now, it probably wouldn't happen. Right, right. And he right. was basically talking about remediation, talking about the extraction of toxins in the well field, in the water you drink. And he was saying it probably wouldn't happen now. And I said to him, because the current federal government is so evil. And he said, no, because the current federal government is so dysfunctional. Right. Yeah. And we also didn't moving. do it through the feds. We, we uh, you'll see in future episodes, we worked only with the DEC, with the New York State Regulatory Agency. I had to argue for that one because I didn't want to work with the feds on uh, the Torn Valley and, and Wellfield contamination, which would have easily classified as a Superfund site. But that's, to a large degree, when we get into Ringwood, when we talk about that, that's what's wrong with Ringwood. It's bogged down with federal disharmony, federal dysfunction. Right. And that's... There's, that, yeah. Our government hasn't moved in so yeah. many years it's you know my way or the highway on both sides in this many dysfunction ways has, it's a problem this dysfunction has us falling backwards and, and in a number of ways and you see the examples we talked about nixon there for a minute and some of the accomplishments that he had he lost his presidency because we held him accountable he would never have lost his presidency no. today Never. No, no, he would have survived today. Absolutely. Yeah. Years later, Trump had literally said Nixon's downfall was he didn't erase those tapes. What a fool. The reason Nixon did not erase those tapes, he talks about in one of his books, and that was it belonged to the American people. So he had no right to erase them. He fiddled with 18 minutes, probably personal. Right. But nonetheless, he believed in the institution. We are a country of laws, not a country of men or women. We're a country of law. And the men and women have to figure out how to work out that law. But that's what we are. And even a Nixon understood this. And so he knew that was the end of his presidency. He stepped down because he knew he was going to get impeached. Impeached. But he he could have erased them. And if the tapes didn't exist, odds are the Congressional Committee would have said, okay, this is a pass. We don't know because that part didn't happen. Right. What we do know is the evidence was there. And he elected not to destroy all the evidence. And that's, that's an amazing, to, you know, it's like my, my liberal friends get really upset when I say this, but that's an amazing illustration of character. Yeah, it sure is. it is. It is. Absolutely. Know, still within the framework of that individual who was so incredibly flawed, there was character. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't know that we'd find that. Well, we know we wouldn't find it. Uh, no, not no. today. Yeah. No. And, 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 and they're flushing and back then, down the toilets now. So <laughs> it's lawyers back then would not ever have done what lawyers today are doing, finding all those loopholes, yeah. so cleverly insulating, so cleverly insulating Trump from legal consequences. Just delaying them, sure, is enough sure. to just that game alone, yeah. right? There was no delay game. There was no delay game back then. There was the, the law. And then facing the consequences of the law. In the 90s, my father bought a small business that used to be an Exxon gas station. 
I learned that it could not be sold or processed to another owner because the earth beneath it was compromised by leaky Exxon gasoline tanks. Okay, so I pressed and I fought and I got, you know, legal representation and I worked hard and I stayed at it. And eventually, you know, together with my father, we got that property remediated. I don't think we could get it remediated today. I don't think we could. Well, my friend Joel Kuppelman, a Manhattan lawyer, Manhattan-based lawyer, he struggles with this stuff all the time. And uh, he gets he does get some areas remediated, similar to your, the underground tank issue, similar to stuff like that. But it is a bigger battle all the time. He's a great guy. Uh, City of Dust is a book that's written as a chapter in there about him, and it's the post-9-11 experience. And, and what he did was he was the lawyer that went out on a limb for the first responders. And much of the law, you know, society, much of the community of, of jurisprudence, they, they looked at him and said, don't do this. You will not have a career after this. Right. And he did really well. He, he, he won for a, a huge number of clients. He put them all together as a package thing. And, uh, and then all the other lawyers... Oh, all the other law firms jumped on of course. because, oh, you can do this now. It's so interesting that it took one person to show the way. The others jump on. Okay, amplify that. Bring that up to today. There's going to be suits out there in Ohio in that little town where, that, where those trains went down. And uh, we're, we're going to see how this plays out yet again. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's it's going to be tough. It's, it's going to be, be tough. tough. It's going to be interesting to see. Are we going to use our educational acumen, you know, in the legal field to help these people? Or are we going to get really clever and really effective at basically denying them the justice and the remediation and the compensation mm. they require in order to, to make up for what happened here? I mean, the very first thing, you know, what the, the, the railroad company did, which is yeah, $1,000 check to each person <laughs> for your inconvenience. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Here, here's 1000 bucks. Shut up and go away. And, you know? and, their, and their profit margin this year was the highest in their history. Oh, yeah. They're making enormous amounts. That's of another money. thing that we need to really look at. Right. Is, sure. is the way, you know, we, we're kind of living in another robber baron era. I mentioned the little robber baron character. Yes. But we're yes. kind of back there now. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're not giving it enough scrutiny. You know, Trump uh, released, relieved the train companies from, from one of the regulations yeah. that required it to break in certain ways and to have certain kinds of breaks. Yep. So they didn't have that. And there's a direct line from erasing of that, that regulation. Breaking system, that breaking system. That breaking yep. system yep. to this tragedy. Yep. And uh, they said a cracked axle, I believe, on one of the cars because of the heat. But they have a video of, of the train well before the crash, and sparks are flying all over the place uh, on this one axle. And, and there it is. And the, the train had well over 100 cars, like 137 cars or something. And there were two people running it because they also allowed the railroad companies to reduce through computerization of the operation of these trains, they allowed them to reduce the number of people that were working on it. So you've got fewer eyes on the ground where the thing is happening. Right. You've got fewer regulatory precautions built into the braking system. Also, they're supposed to notify all the towns they're going through when they're bringing toxic substances through the towns. And they haven't been. And there hasn't been code enforcement on that in years. This gets back to the people. And the people, I believe, I absolutely believe in the people. And the people can do this. 
but it's a heavy lift. And they have to stay at it's it. It's just a heavy lift, and it they sure got to work is. at it all the time. They can't. And that's what I'm kind of anxious as we go through this series, which really tells the story of of your heavy lift and the the efforts that you made and that the people around you made to try to to resolve this situation. We're going to be listening to this story simultaneous to watching the way we handle what's happened to the people in Ohio. And there'll be other stories. It's just these things keep happening. Sure. It's just like the shootings. There's some stuff that just keeps happening. I guess it's getting a little worse in Ohio because now they're digging in more and they're seeing what's happened with this PVC and all the, it's, right. it's caused major damage to the well system yeah. all through the whole area. And, and, you know, the canaries in the coal mine, of course, are always the fish and the, and the animals in the area. And the, the animals are dying at yeah. alarming rates. And they're so, letting you know it's there. Yeah, they're, it's they're there. telling us, you know, there's terrible danger here. So I think that the, the moral so far here is please be observant. You know, as Tom said, you know, before you have to definitely challenge and question authority. Chuck, as you have said, you know, you you have to speak out. You have to stay involved. It's the people that will make the difference. We, the people, are the solution. We were then, we are today, and we always will be as long as we exercise our agency, as long as we advocate and we speak out and we refuse to be silenced. We can make the difference. And with that, so long for this week. I think we're on to something here. I hope that you keep on following us. I hope that you keep on getting involved. That's the answer. Thanks so much, Chuck. Thank Thank you. you. Joe. Thank you, Tommy, for being here. Thank you, Chuck. It was great. And we'll be back next week to get the lead out.